Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. Yeah, I'm Honore Gatera, and I'm the manager for the Kigali Genocide Memorial. When I sat down with Honore, I had just finished a tour of the Kigali Genocide Memorial. Oh, well, I started working here in 2004, so it's been now 13 years that I'm working at this memorial. Um, I started working as a, a guide. Um, I spent eight years guiding visitors from different countries, from different corners of Rwanda. And uh, um, in 2010 towards 2011, that's when I was promoted to be the manager of the memorial. And the memorial opened in 1999? Yes, the memorial was built in 1999, but in 2000. 2004, uh, that's when it opened officially with uh, a genocide museum. Uh, it used to be a barrier place, but it didn't have the artifacts, it didn't have any graphics of the museum, it didn't have the library, it didn't have the archives. Uh, so in 2004, that's when this whole project was officially launched and it's evolving, it's still developing, it's not static. The Rwandan genocide happened in 1994. That means that the museum and the memorial opened only 10 years later. The city of Kigali and the country of Rwanda were very different from what I saw in 2017. Why this place was chosen for the barrier? Um, the place was chosen to be the barrier place. Um, amazingly, Kigali has grown so fast in the last 15 years. This area of Gisozi was very outside of the city. If you see the city center hill, which is called Nyarugenje Hill, that was the only closed area that would be nearby Gisozi. Uh, this area didn't have a tarmac road. This area didn't have the uh, Kigali Independent University, which is here now. This area was somehow outside. It, has fl- it had free lands, and it has uh, sports and areas that could be used for a memorial, mm-hmm. mainly a barrier place, because the objective was to make sure that um, hundreds of thousands of victims who are in different pits in Kigali can find uh, a dignified burial and a final resting place for all of them. And it ended up by becoming this area. So the, uh, the sort of visitor experience begins with watching a movie mm-hmm. and, uh, and then before sort of entering the main museum. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to me about what that uh, initial movie is what is its purpose for the visit? All right, yeah. Thank you. you. You mentioned something very important, which is actually a professional term we use, visitor experience. Uh, since 2014, um, that's almost three years ago, uh, we started the journey of changing our visitor experience. Uh, we started implementing uh, new uh, policies or new areas or new ways of uh, dealing with our visitors uh, because since the memorial was created, this this was a new experience for us all Rwandans. We didn't have any museum that is focusing on such history or such kind of dark tourism. But as time was going on, we could see how we can develop a much more deeper and educational experience. Uh, the first film that you watched is uh, based on three individual stories. Uh, and it's a film that we are using for a purpose of setting the mood to our visitors. After being briefed how you are going to visit the memorial, next on is the film, a film that will show you that the place you are going to visit uh, is a place of such stories, is a place that goes back into the dark chapter of Rwanda, 
and it's a, a story that is talking about individuals before it even talks to the community. It talks about the community. So those individuals are telling you their own stories mm-hmm. uh, and they tell you how they consider this memorial. And one of them says actually, it's a home for me because he feels that that's, what, that's the final area he can at least go and pay respect to his beloved ones. So the purpose of the film is to make sure that you understand the place you are going to visit. Basically that it's sad, we need to acknowledge that. It's about individual stories, it's about a community story, and it's the darkest chapter of history of Rwanda that you are going to see. Mm-hmm. But to complete that, in our visit experience, we have split the film into two because we want to tell people that Rwanda is not stuck in 1994, but Rwanda has moved forward. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and it, I mean, as a visitor, I'm sorry. You, do you want to take that? As a visitor, it's um, to Rwanda. It's very clear to mm-hmm. me from the out. I mean, I know very little about mm-hmm. the country, but it's very clear that it has moved. Mm-hmm. But for someone who goes, a visitor who goes from the airport directly to the memorial, you know, mm-hmm. directly to the memorial, they might not know that. Yes, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, after seeing the the first the first half of the film, mm-hmm. um, you go down you go downstairs, mm-hmm. and the history starts with the pre-colonial times. Yes. Um, and can you kind of walk me through wh- yes. where the visitors go exactly. and the, the key points along the way? Oh yes. Uh, then the experience is after watching the film. Of course, uh, when you leave the film, you, you have an idea of what it is, and sometimes. Uh, in the experience, we've seen that people tend to be like, oh, this is too much, I don't know if I will be making it. But when you get into the museum, the museum tries to narrate the story of the genocide. As you said, starting with the pre-colonial period to show the unity of Rwandans, to present the nation as it used to be before colonialism came in Africa. We then go into the colonial rule to see the changes that uh, the colonial rule introduced in communities in Africa, including Rwanda, where divisionism ideology uh, led to bad leadership because uh, the divisionism ideology of the divide and rule policy of the colonizers led to a post-independence uh, leadership that was convinced into divisionism and continued to preach hatred until they used the media and started the plan of the genocide. Yeah, we talk about the genocide, of course, it's a dark moment of three months that we refer to as 100 days in Rwanda in 1994, spring 1994. Uh, and then we talk about the consequences. Yeah. But in the chapter of the consequences, you may learn that we talk about the consequences, but we start showing how the country moved forward uh, with uh, the homegrown solutions like Gachacha, mm-hmm. the, proce- the process of unity and reconciliation, and then teaching about uh, uh, positive values that young people have to grow up with. Why do you think that a museum is the right medium to tell this story? Well, uh, personally, in the beginning, I didn't understand why. But now I do understand. Uh, because uh, there, is, there is a funny saying that um, people use when they try to describe Africans, and sometimes it's the truth, saying that if you want to hide something from an African, put it in a book. Because the culture of reading is still poor in Africa. Uh, from that fact, people always want to learn things from the oral system or watching videos. 
it's still prevailing, prevailing in Africa. You would see, if you did the research, you would find that reading books, it's not very much in the culture. Uh, sometimes because maybe the books are written in the languages that we don't speak, that's one. Or maybe because our cultures do not teach us as young boys and young girls to start reading books. Though even if it's changing, it's still there in Africa. So having a such tool as a museum using graphics helps people, even those young ones, to really understand or to even have, to be curious to come and see it. Number two, it's also another way of preserving the history. Yeah, there are books written about the genocide, uh, there are researches that were done, but those ones are not the archives. These testimonies of survivors, even if they can be written, we need to see their faces, we need to see how they tell their stories. And that's the reason why combining all those kind of information, written, audio and video, um, is, as you said, a, a very good medium in a, in, a, in a museum to tell the story of the genocide. Because that would be lasting, I don't know how many years, hundreds of years. For, for the school groups to, so, so you, you, know, you might know this, um, you know, in the U.S. It's, it's very common for a school group to take a day off of school and mm. go to a museum instead. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do, is that something similar? Yes, we do have those cases. But in the very beginning when we started this museum, we could learn and see how schools want to come here, but we didn't have a methodology to do it. Our schools were not teaching about the history of genocide. Why? Because uh, it wasn't mentioned in the curriculum uh, as the story or the history that we were learning before the genocide was transformed or was changed to make sure that it's serving the interest of the planners of the genocide. So not having history or genocide studies in the curriculum it was a challenge for the teachers. How do they teach about the genocide? Where do they know that in a classroom they have Hutu and Tutsi children? children of perpetrators, children of survivors, children of returnees who came from the refugee countries for where they lived for more than 30 years. So from that point, we decided to start an experience of an educational program in 2008. The median age of Rwanda is 18, which means that almost half of Rwandans were born after the year 2000. It's the first time that they've heard people talking about the uh, Hutu and the Tutsi in public, openly because, talking about it. Because it is not, you're not, you're not supposed to talk about no, it. You are, you, no, you can talk about it, but you're not, you're not supposed to talk about uh, the ethnicities in the public. Individuals. Individuals, yes. Mm. But w when it's for educational purposes, yes, mm -hmm. you can. I see. Mm -hmm. I noticed one of, one of the striking things about, the, about some of the um, exhibits, for example, the children's room, was uh, was a plaque that said to the effect of um, you know these might be some of the this might be the last or the only photograph that the families that own. the families own yes um, I am interested in the process of a family member coming to the museum with a photo well the process began in two thousand and four we were not basically calling for people to bring them, but we were going to see them in the homes because we wanted to do a research, we wanted to collect uh, artifacts and materials to use in the museum. And 
having gone into the homes, into the families, we collected thousands and thousands of photos. Of course, it's one of the valuable things that survivors had on them because their personal belongings and properties were burnt or destroyed. And whoever had a photo was stick on it. And you can understand it. So we decided to have the, their originals scanned, preserved digitally, and then produce duplicates that will be displayed in a museum. And that was, for them, one of the best things we did. So that they could keep the original? They would keep the original, preserve their photo digitally, because they can't preserve for themselves. Sure. And then in the end, uh, have it displayed in the museum. Because for them, that's a very good way of dignifying the lives of their beloved ones. And in 2010, we, we also did a campaign of calling people now to bring photos. And this reception was receiving thousands of photos. And we have cases where those families that gave us photos, because they have maybe moved from one home to another, they lost their original. And it's the only area where they come and say, can, can I have a copy of my photo that I gave? And we give them a copy. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Mm -hmm. so, so it becomes a repository as well. as It does, yes. And you see that as the, as the museum's role continuing forward indefinitely. Yeah, for sure. For, uh, there, there, will, there, will, there, will, there will be a time where we don't um, have the, any more photos to collect. But it will be a repository for even the grandchildren to come yes. and search. Yes. For the photos, yes. yeah, and we've developed an archive that is online now, yes. which is very easy to use and that can be can serve the whole world. We, we want this memorial to become one of the world-class museums and educational centers because we, no, we we're not talking about the past only. We want to talk about Rwanda now, and that's the biggest part that we think will be dynamic for the course of ten years, where we we needed to embed the progress that Rwandans are making. Uh, in perspective with what is happening around the world. And as I said, it's dynamic. Uh, we talk about the genocide in other countries. What if something changes and we see that there are some new items that have to be in the museum? Yeah. Uh, we look at being dynamic and making sure that we cope with the emerging technologies as well. Maybe the kind of touch screens that we're using now will not be any more important in the next five years. Yes. How do we do it? That's why we keep this character of being dynamic. We don't change history, but we add tools and materials that actually help people to understand the history yes. much more in a better way. This has been Museum Archipelago. If you like episodes like this one, help me continue doing the podcast and get some fun benefits by joining Club Archipelago at patreon.com slash museumarchipelago. For more information or to submit feedback, visit museumarchipelago.com or museum underscore go on Twitter. Next time, bring a friend. <laughs>